Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Salt Church Podcast. Well, I heard one man say, I hope he talks about bow hunting. No, we're going to talk about marriage tonight for a while. How many of you are married? The first 50 years are the toughest. <laughs> oh, I remember that day. He's walking down the aisle. And my little knees were knocking. And uh, I was thinking, man, I am a lucky dude to be married to this chick. If you've never seen a picture of my wife, she's actually a very stunning, beautiful lady. And uh, she came down that aisle, and we had a huge wedding. We spent $29 on flowers for the entire wedding. We had uh, nuts and mints at the church, and then we went to her aunt's house and had ham and cheese sandwiches. It was a big affair. And we took off for Yuma, Arizona in a 1960 Corvair that didn't have air conditioning. If you know anything about the Southwest, it was 105 degrees on August 5th as we took off from Tucson. But one of the smartest things I did is I was pulling out of town. I pulled off the side of the road. I put my hand on her thigh, and I prayed audibly that God would bless our union. And so here we are. We've been married for over 50 years in a row. And that's the hard part. But I want to go back to her walking down the aisle because uh, we didn't have much money. And she, she had these few little daisies. That was her bouquet, daisies. To this day, she hates daisies. If I really want to get her mad, bring her some daisies. Okay? But that's all she could afford. But I didn't realize that underneath that bouquet was a rule book. And we have conversations like this. To this day, we have conversations like this. You're not going out like that, are you? What's the problem? Well, you got a big spot on your shirt. Only one? Don't worry about it. I'll be back in an hour and a half. This woman can spot a flaw at 50 paces. She's a firstborn. Some of you have met my, or read my birth order book. Firstborns are the great people. They're the movers and shakers of life. There are engineers and uh, there are perfectionists. Anywhere where perfection is paid off, you're going to find the firstborn or the only child. You want an anesthesiologist who's a firstborn, trust me. You don't want the baby, the family anesthesiologist who says, oh, well, we're a few cc's off. Who cares? <laughs> that was it for your life. You're done. But anyway, I want you to think about marriage for a second because just like when Sandy and I were married years ago, here's a simple question. How many people were married? And somebody says, well, you know, here in Corey, we'd say probably two. Well, no, two is not the accurate answer. Oh, I get it. Three, because Christ is a part of that union. Well, marriage is, it is, it's supposed to be. For people who've struggled in marriage, for people who've been divorced, here's the question. Did you first seek the kingdom of God in your life? No, you went off on your own, and that's why you got in trouble. But anyway, I, uh, I'm good at getting off course. 
the two shall become one. That's one of the funniest things that you find in God's word. Because God created us so differently. We are night and day different. I always tell people, Sandy and I live in a two-story house. Her story and mine. We see life completely different. You women use three and a half times the number of words that your husband uses in a given day. In fact, by Thursday of this week, your husband will be out of words. He's used up his whole allotment. But women, women love to ask questions. They love questions. You are wordsmiths. You are so weird. You go potty in groups of four, six, eight. You announce you're going potty, which I always thought was a little strange. Hi, I'm going potty. Anyone want to come along? I'm telling you, men, it's a social event. You're not going to hear me say to Pastor L, hey, Pastor L, I'm going to take a leak. Want to come with me? Come on, bud, you and me. That ain't going to happen. And so here, God, in all of his majesty, I mean, I love women. I love that feminine touch they give. Oh, my goodness, they're wonderful. And I love that masculine. And he's built us in such a way that those two things should come together and create greatness, greatness in relationships, intimacy. But if you take a look around and read the stats on marriage, we're not doing very good at that. Ephesians 5 reminds us, it's interesting, because in verse 521 it says, Honor Christ by submitting to one another. I spoke to women of faith out in Las Vegas, 12,000 women in the round, okay? I'm the only one. I'm the only male there. I'm there with a bunch of women, Patsy Claremont, who's about three feet, six inches tall. A woman's this big. And uh, some others whose names I can't remember. But anyway, I remember they had this long introduction. It was embarrassing. On these three big screens with a picture of me up on it. And finally it came to, here's, here's fat boy, Dr. Lehman. So I come out there, and I'm asking you gentlemen, what are these women doing when I come out there? They're talking. They're sharing. They're communicating. Women, most women have the instincts of a bird dog. You ever been in a, out in a field and have a bird dog chasing down a pheasant? I grew up hunting pheasants in western New York as a kid. But, and I hunted with a German short hair. And that German short hair would roam that field like this. And all of a sudden, whoosh, she would stop. And that front paw came up. And that tail straightened. And that dog did not move a muscle. Women have that same ability, gentlemen. They see their girlfriend. Oh, I love your hair. That's the cue for the woman to go into her purse and say, look at this picture. You know, and she, I, I want a feather and layer, and this is what it looked like. I want to look like that. I mean, to go on and on and on. I'm shortening it because we're out of time. Two men meet. Got a haircut, huh? Yep. That's it. We do life completely different. And so trying to make it through marriage means you have to get good at getting behind each other's eyes and seeing how we see life. And the fact of the matter is, we see life completely different. 
So it's the smart woman who understands what this man is all about. But one thing I want to teach you women tonight, I wrote a book called Have a New Husband by Friday, okay? It was one of the most fun books I ever did. And it's really not about dumping your husband, please, and find yourself a new husband. It's really designed to teach you how to talk to us husbands. And again, we hate questions. We hate the why word. I'm here to tell you women love questions, love the why word. Well, my husband doesn't talk to me. Well, I got news for you, lady. He doesn't talk to you because you're always telling him what to do, number one. And you're asking him way too many questions. Well, it's just beside me. If I don't ask questions, how am I supposed to know? Well, let me give you a goldie tonight. Ladies, tuck this one in your pocket. Hey, honey, I'd love your opinion about whatever. You ask a man his opinion, he's going to talk. Now, I'm not affirming his opinion. I'm not telling you his opinion's right. I'm just telling you, if you want that man to talk, ask his opinion. You want that man to talk, touch him. One lady said, hey, Lehman, I tried that one night, and they ended up looking at the ceiling. I said, enjoy. Those things happen in life. That's how men are. Men are much more visual than women are. Women have the ability to see inside of people. Men get blinded lots of times by the outlying things. I'll share probably tomorrow morning, I'm speaking tomorrow at 1030 in your church service, about how I met Mrs. Uppington. Mrs. Uppington, by the way, is my pet name for my bride because she's the classy one of the two of us, okay? If you look at me and then you look at her, you'll wonder, how did those two people get together? We are so different, and yet we've been blessed with a great union for all those years. What do we do with kids? They come home from school. What does mom say to little Buford when Buford comes home from school? What's the standard line? Uh, how was your day today at school, honey? What's little Bufy say? Fine. What'd you do in school today? Nothing. Well, Dr. Lehman, what am I supposed to do? Well, how about saying hello? And just step back and listen. It's great if you just, as a parent, you don't have to hover over your children. We're going to talk about that in the latter part of tonight's presentation. But anyway, I digress. But children and husbands have similarities, and that's what I want you women to understand. Okay? Let me put it this way. Think of your husband as a four-year-old that shaves. That gets pretty close to who he is, okay? Most of us as men are not that complicated. And by the way, when I'm talking about women and men, men are this way, women are this way, about 15% of you are just the opposite for whatever reason, okay? So if, you, if, if it sounds like, uh-oh, I'm not anywhere near that, well, you're one of those 15%. I'm just telling you that that's what it's all about. 1 Peter 3.7 says, live with them with understanding. Now, again, I've been married a long time. I've had some interesting things happen. My wife is a trip and then some. I came home one day, and I pulled into our driveway, and someone, and I knew who it was, even though I had two teenage drivers at the time, I knew who did it. Someone had driven the van, backed it right through the garage door. 
tore the garage door off. It was hanging by a thread, ruined the top of the van. I mean, the little thing on top, what do you call it? The luggage carrier looked like a pretzel hanging off the side of it. Well, I ask you men, what do you do when you pull in your driveway and there you see your, your garage door is torn to shreds, your car is ruined? What do you do? I'll tell you what I did. I just sat there. I just sat there. I didn't move a muscle. And I just thought, how did she do that? I knew it was her. I mean, she does things like that. She continues to do things. In fact, we had a discussion once with her and one of my other daughters. It went like this. When you guys hit something... If you would just stop, you could save the family thousands of dollars. But anyway, I get out of my car, and my 16-year-old daughter comes out from underneath this hanging garage. She comes out and greets me. She says, Dad, Dad, what are you going to do to her? I went like this. I said, follow me, honey. And I come in through the garage, through the doorway, into the kitchen, and she's cutting carrots on a board. And I simply said to her, how was your day today, honey? And she said, oh, fine. And she had tears in her eyes. I said, come, turn that off. I'm taking you out to dinner. Everybody in the car. We piled in my little car. I got five kids. We look like the Beverly Hillbillies, to tell you the truth. I didn't mention the garage door. We went to dinner. I didn't mention the garage door. I came home. I didn't mention the garage door. We ducked underneath it. I went back to my bedroom. My daughter, my 16-year-old daughter, was on my heels. Dad, Dad, I thought you were going to do something to Mom. I said, honey, I did. I loved her. And with the help of State Farm, (laughs) we got the car fixed. We got the garage door fixed. It's metal. Your wife, gentlemen, asks you every day, Not with words. Do you really love me? Do you really care? That's what she wants to know. And if she does, she'll please you every way possible. Being married is not complex. Being a parent isn't complex. I mean, I've written lots of books, 60-some books, which is probably 50 too many. But... The art of being married gets down to understanding who this person is. Some of you know my friend Gary Chapman. Gary and I have been friends for years. The five love languages, quality time, listen to him, quality time, acts of service, words of affirmation, physical touch, gifts. Now, do you know your bride's love language? It's interesting because if you're representative of most couples, you have different love languages. My wife is a gift giver of all gift givers. I've done cruises, lots of cruises, where I speak on cruises in the Caribbean. I was doing a cruise down there and somewhere, and uh, a guy comes up to me and says, hey, Doc, he says, this is none of my business, but your, wife, your wife's handing out envelopes to couples. I go, hey, thanks for the tip. She's handing out massages. Well, massages on a cruise ship are 120 bucks a pop, and she's handing them out like they're dime store candy. That's Mrs. Uppington. That's the woman I live with. She is a giver beyond all giving. Everybody gets a gift. I mean, she invents reasons to give people gifts, okay? Uh, I'm a physical touch person, okay? So it gets interesting. 
Here's a question for you women tonight. How many of you women tonight would love a back rub? Hands up. Where are you? Okay. Now, if Mrs. Uppington were here tonight, you wouldn't see her hand up in the air. You know why? To quote her, I don't like being rubbed. Scratch me. She loves to be scratched. Like this. Look at S-shaped. She loves S-shaped like this with just my nails. And then she loves this backhand down the back like this. Oh, and very important, on top of the nighty only. This is a woman who showers with the bathrobe on. You know, I learned something interesting. I was married about three or four years, and I was taking a shower. And I thought to myself, you know what my young bride would love? She would love her own personal dance by the man she loves. Now, to show you how stupid I am, gentlemen, I decide, yeah, I can get out there and shake, rattle, and roll. So I jump out of the shower. I do my little impromptu dance. I thought I had some great moves, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. She looked at me, and her eyes narrowed. And she said, and this is a quote, Leamy. That is not a good look. <laughs> you learn a few things being married, don't you? What I've learned about my wife, what she loves is she's sitting there. I just walk by her and I might do this on the side of her hair. Or if I kiss her, I might take her face like this and cup it gently and just give her a soft kiss. And she purrs like a kitten. You want to be a leader in the family? You better know who you're leading. I wrote a book back there called The Way of the Shepherd. It's a five-star rated book on leadership. And one of the principles is this. They don't care what you know until they know you care. It's real simple. And so we talk about marriage and all this division and lack of communication. I mean, you've got to be able to communicate. You've got to be able to tell the truth. You've got to have time. But, you know, you get married for a few years, and then you have those, uh, what do you call them? Um, children. That's it, children. Those little suckers, uh, they can make you do things you never thought you would do as an adult. And lots of times, because they're so dependent, especially for mommies, mommies fall prey to this easier than daddies do, their whole life centers around that little ankle biter. By the way, that's a disservice to your children, but we'll get to that in the second part. So being a priority, I always tell young couples, the first uh, few weeks after a baby's born, be sure to leave the child at home with a babysitter. Now, if you're a young mom, first time around, you want a Ph.D. Uh, in nursing to take care of your child. But trust me, a girlfriend or a grandma will do fine. But I always ask them to go out. Go out, just go out and get a pizza. Go out and do whatever you want to do. But, but set the paradigm, the model in your life that you have a right to your marriage. And when you do that, you've got to remember our kids. Kids are always looking up. They're taking emotional notes, spiritual notes on how you live your life. They're saying, do the words you say match up with what you do? And they're always looking. 
So again, the man will talk. And by the way, does your husband have any friends? No. If he's like most men, he has no friends. He has associates. What's an associate? Oh, around, I'll tell you what they do around here in Climber. They go and they sit in a tree in the fall. Or they'll go out in a lake and they'll be out there looking for a hapless walleye. They're sitting there for 30 minutes in silence. Any hits? No, nothing. Let's move. You come home from your fishing trip. There's only your wife can say. Well, honey, how was your day? Oh, we had a great day. We had a great day. Great time. Well, what'd you do? Mm-hmm. I remember being at our friend's house. He's a, he's a State Farm agent. He cooks steaks out back. I went back with him when he was cooking the steaks. And we're driving home that night. We had a nice evening. They go to our church. We've been in the same Bible study forever. And uh, she starts on me with a question. What's new with Joe? I said, nothing. She said, what do you mean, nothing? I said, honey, you asked me what's new with Joe. I'm telling you there's nothing new with Joe. She said, well, you were out there with him for quite a while. When you were out there cooking steaks, what what, did you talk about? Nothing. <laughs> Ladies, this is what you have to understand. Two men can be together for a long time and talk about nothing. That's who we are. Did you ever see two men meet? You ever been to a party and you, you show up at the punch bowl, gentlemen, at the same time somebody else does? It's that, sort of that nervous moment where you really don't know the guy. So what, what do most of us men do? I'm going to show you what we do. Ladies, watch. We save words by doing that. Now, if we get vulnerable and I say, hey, I'm Kevin, and Pastor L says, I'm Al, okay. Now, what's the next thing that Al or Kevin says in all probability? Well, you do for a living. And we talk about what we do. Men identify, over-identify with what they do. Women today are in every occupation under the sun. I fly a lot. I got almost 5 million miles on American Airlines to give you an idea. But many times I hear this feminine voice, we'll be cruising at 37,000 feet. But you know those two women who meet in that same situation? Do they talk about their work? No. They talk about what? Relationships. Relationships. And so the smart man will tap into his wife. Now, gentlemen, I know I'm getting you, some of you guys in big trouble right now, but I'm telling you, the smart man says, honey, I'd love to ask your opinion about this. I don't want your input. Because women are closer to life than men are. That's what you have to understand. I remember one morning I was having a cup of coffee out in Arizona, and we have a lot of quail out there. And Daddy Quail is very brightly colored, beautiful bird. And he gets on top of the bird bath, and uh, he's just having a sip of water, looking around. And there's Mama Quail 
And the baby quail, when they come out, when you first see them, I'm telling you, they're they're an inch and a half, maybe tall, best. They're little. And, and a quail can have eight, 10, 12 little quails. They're really fun to watch. But I sat there one morning watching this quail, and I thought, look at that lazy guy. He's just sitting there having a cup of water, and mama quail is down there wrangling them all in, keeping them together and all that. And then it hit me that, no, you know what? That male has that protective instinct in him. And what he did was he got to higher ground so he could see if there was a bobcat or a cat or some kind of prey nearby. And so men and women today, take a look. I mean, we can't talk to each other. We live in a woke society. The things that are going on in our country are absolutely crazy. But I got news for you. This is late-breaking news. Men and women are different. They will always be different. And viva la difference. It's the differences that make you a couple. If you were both the same, I'll pick on Chris and Al. Don't ever sit in the front seat. You get picked on. I'll pick on Chris and Al for a second. If they were both the same, there'd be no need for one of them in marriage. It's the differences that make us a couple. I wrote the birth order book, which talks about why, why do firstborns and only children marry with great, huge numbers, youngest children in the family? That's the best match there is, believe it or not. What's the toughest match? The firstborn and the firstborn. The only and the only. Why is that the toughest? Because these are the people that know everything. I spoke to, I'm trying to think of what the group was. Oh, orthopedic surgeons. There's different, there's like the Western Association of Orthopedic Surgeons, the Southern. I've done about three of their different associations around the country. And my first words to them up in, uh, where was I, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, was this. I said, why did you invite me to be your speaker? No speaker could tell you guys what to do about anything. And they had a nervous laugh about them. Because I got news for you. Orthopedic surgeons know exactly how life ought to be. And again, you want that perfection with those professional people. Astronauts in outer space are the first 23, 21 firstborn children, two only children, which are psychological cousins of the firstborn. You have a little son or a little daughter that's talking about becoming an astronaut and they're the youngest in the family. Uh, this would be a real good time to take them down to Arby's and show them what the fry cook does. <laughs> because chances are, they might act like they're in space, but they're probably not going to be in space. God made us in such a miraculous way. I mean, the marriage thing is just mind-boggling because you have these two people who are just so different. And by the way, I realized I never answered the question. When two people walk down the aisle, is it two people? No. Is it three because Christ is a part of it? Yeah. Theoretically, that's supposed to be how it is. But the right answer is at least six. Where are you getting the six from? And I'm glad you're sitting down because you marry your in-laws. There's an interesting thought. But whatever baggage, whatever dysfunction was in that marriage of your, how your dad treated mom, how mom treated dad. I mean, remember I said about kids are looking up? Those are the things you pay for. And if that's a rough background for you in marriage, you've got to make sure that your husband or your wife isn't paying their dues, so to speak, for the sins of father or mother. But that's the reality. 
I mean, marriage can be the greatest thing in the world. You got a great marriage, there's nothing better. To have this woman love you with all your spots and blemishes and all that, I mean, it doesn't get better, okay? Who can fill in the right word here? You're in good hands with Allstate. Do you know how long that thing has been around? Since I was a little boy, and I'm near death. But whoever thought of that really understood how a woman in particular wants to feel in marriage. She wants to feel like she has that husband's support in everything. You remember how different they are? Mrs. Uppington, scratch me. All women are not the same. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that all men are the same. I'm saying your job is to understand how they see life, get behind their eyes, and then act accordingly. Because you ought to want to please your husband, please your wife in all things. I've got a book called Sheet Music. If you've never read Sheet Music and you're married, you're missing out on some things. It's a a book that has helped hundreds of thousands of couples all over. And it gets down to the nitty-gritty of what oneness in marriage is all about. In fact, I was out at... uh, Rick Warren is a pastor of a church. He's now... He's finally retired out in California. He's the author of The Purpose Driven Church. And Rick and I have been friends for years, and I've spoken his church several times. And when you go out there to that church, you speak five times on a Sunday. I'm telling you, by sermon number three or four, you, you don't know if Jesus was the good guy or the bad guy. I mean, you just really, it's just, it's, it's tiring. But he calls me up one day. He says, hey, Kevin, he says, I want you to come back to the church. He says, I want you to speak. I said, Rick, my pleasure. Just if we can work out a date, I'll do my best to get there. I live in Tucson. He lives in Southern California. It's an hour plane ride, no big deal. And I said, well, he said, yeah, but I want, I, want, I want to talk to you about what I want you to talk about. I said, okay, well, you know me. What do you want me to talk about? He said, I want to talk about sex. I said, okay, uh, Rick, let me ask you a question. On that Sunday morning, what are the kind of words do you think should come out of my mouth on that Sunday morning? And he laid about four of them on me, and I said, oh, my. You really do want to talk about that, don't you? So I got up there, and I gave it to him really good. About two years later, I was at Reunion Arena in Dallas, Texas, at a huge convention. And a guy grabs me from behind by my neck to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't see who it was. And this is the quote, and it was Rick, Rick Warren. He said, hey, Kevin, I never got a chance to tell you, but you set the all-time record for requests from an outside speaker at our church. I'm here to tell you that we haven't talked about sex in a healthy way within the church. Sex is a gift from Almighty God. It's misused in so many ways, it's unbelievable. But God has ordained that. He's blessed that. That's part of our marital life. And it's such a problem for so many couples. Because I've been the one for 40 years who sat behind closed doors. I've heard every story 
you can possibly imagine. Trust me, nothing would surprise me. If one of you took me aside and said, Dr. Lehman, can I ask you a question? And it was something that was just way, way out. Trust me, I've heard it several times because I think I've heard about everything there is to hear. But it's interesting because I want you to think about, we talk about Gary Chapman and his love languages. What does your mate complain about? Just think of what does your husband, what does your wife complain about? You got that? Okay. That's the missing link in your, in your marriage. That's the thing you have to address. They're tipping you off to tell you this is my love language. Hey, honey, what do you mean? I mean, hey, honey, t- l- l- listen, you know, it seems to me what you want me to do is like a read your mind. Now, here's my promise to you. Just tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. Now, that's the mentality of many men in this room tonight. I can hear it. I'm just, that's how we are. Honey, just tell me what you want me to do. You know, that's not what a woman wants. If a woman says to you, honey, I need a hug. You put it on your cell phone, you walk over, and you go, and you hold her. What does she tell herself? Well, he hugged me, but he only hugged me because I asked him to and not because he really wanted to. See, that's the kicker. That's the emotional thing. So I, with my wife, I've got to a point where we can, she cries at commercials on TV. Does anybody have a wife who cries at commercials on TV? My wife cries at commercials. But I can tell you the split second that tear is coming over that eyelid. You get to know somebody. And that's what true intimacy is all about in marriage. Here's an interesting question. You want intimacy in a marriage? Pray together audibly. Well, Dr. Lehman, I think prayers are very personal. Hey, you can think whatever you want. I'm just telling you. If you want to grow together in marriage, pray together audibly. There's a lot of things that a husband is not going to tell you. He's just not. But if it's prayer and he's praying to his maker and he loves God and he's honest with God in that prayer, you're going to hear things that are going on in his head that you knew nothing about. You want to fight? Hold hands and fight. Those of you who can't communicate, here's the paradigm. You say something. You got three minutes. Say whatever you want. You can be angry if you want, but you got three minutes. After your little tirade, now it's your husband's responsibility to parrot back to you what he, think, what he thinks you just said. If he doesn't have it right, then you get 30 seconds to sort of correct him. You ought to enjoy that part. But you go back and forth until you get to a point where you really understand how different we are. Sometimes we hurt each other's feelings and we don't know it. My wife loves... Restaurants with three forks. She loves restaurants that have four forks. And I hate to tell you, she loves them with five forks. I loathe, that means hate, restaurants with five forks. I hate those suckers. They're like bringing you water about every third 30 seconds. I told one guy, one, one more water, I'm decking you. I'm telling you, sir, leave me alone. I'm fine. All I want to do is eat. You know, and again, Mrs. Uppington, she loves 
So what do I do? I don't like those places, but I take her there. So I have a reservation at Vivace Italian Restaurant in Tucson. It's a four-forker. She loves it. We're done our dinner, and the waiter comes over and says, will, we, will you be joining us for dessert? And I'm thinking, is he going to pull up a chair and have creme brulee with me? And I, I, I looked at my wife and said, honey, it's your call. And she says, no, no, I don't think so. I said, sir, we'll just take our check, and we're ready to go. Now, I don't make these stories up, okay? We're driving home on Skyline Drive in Tucson. We've been driving about five minutes, and she turns to me and she says, uh, you want to stop for ice cream? Now, you talk about El Stoopy, though. I said, no. I'm driving home. I know she didn't want to. I assume she didn't want to. Why, I, we just asked if you want dessert. She said, no. That's how I think. A, you said this. B, you said this. C, I got it. Okay. That's how, that's how we think. So all of a sudden I look over and there's tears streaming down her face. So I said, what would you say to her? I said, honey, what's wrong? Nothing. Women lie like dogs. <laughs> Write that down. They lie like dogs. There's nothing wrong. I said, what do you mean there's nothing wrong? You're crying, aren't you? I said, there's nothing wrong. I go, what is wrong with you? We just had a wonderful night together. And she says, I want to stop for ice cream. Here's the tip, gentlemen. When your wife says, would you like to stop for ice cream? She is not asking a question. That's how they speak. We're not like that. Hey, honey, I like some... Strawberry shortcake. Any chance we got No, that's, that's man talk. Women, completely different. They find that back door to slide in that conversation. The first thing I told you tonight was, what about women? They're weird. And men are strange. But Almighty God made us in such a way, we, we really are designed for each other. It's the femininity that brings the best out of a man. It's the masculinity that a woman craves for as long as that masculinity is loving and understanding. The words you choose to use with each other make all the difference in the world. So, needs of a men, and men and women, completely different. Completely different. What are the needs for women? Affection, communication. Let's start with those two. Now, you ask yourselves, men, how good at you are at being affectionate? I'm telling you right here, in this room tonight, we have men who are world-class grabbers. We love to grab. I have yet to hear a woman say to me face-to-face, -face, oh, I just love it when, husband, when my husband Harold grabs me. <laughs> women don't like being grabbed. They like being held, touched, gentle. It's that whole thing. You know, not to get too graphic, but how long does it take for your husband to get frisky? 90 seconds. Okay, my friend Gary Smalley, who has left us, he passed away a few years ago. In fact, we were on a cruise ship together two weeks before he passed away. But he said, you know, women are like crockpots, and men are like microwaves. 
There's a lot of psychological truth in that. But again, as you go through life together, I'm just telling you, you have to get behind each other's eyes and see how you see life. Now, we take a look at uh, those needs of affection and, and, and uh, communication, commitment to the family. Those are things that are most meaningful to a woman, okay? Men, a little bit different. They need to feel needed, wanted, and respected. Well, what is it that makes your husband feel needed? When was the last time you sent him an email and said, great news, the kids are at grandma's house. If you hurry home, I'm going to have some hors d'oeuvres I know you're going to like. You know, if you get that email at work, I'll tell you what that man's going to do. He's going to bolt into that boss's office and say, hey, John, I got a terrible headache. Do you mind if I leave a little early? (laughs) Anticipation is as good or better than participation. When was the last time you gave your husband something to anticipate? When was the last time you kidnapped your husband and took him away? When was the last time you kidnapped your wife and took her away? I've always got these things in my mind. I take my wife to one of those nice five forkers we talk about. And afterward, we drive. And Tucson, Arizona is really nice because it's a tourist type town. We got beautiful weather out there, and we have beautiful five star hotels. They cost a fortune to spend a night there. Of course, when May rolls around and the temperature gets up close to 100 degrees, you can have a beautiful $400 room for $59. Now you're talking, okay? So we go out for dinner. We have a nice time. I'm driving down Campbell Avenue. I hang a left-hand turn into this resort. And all of a sudden, she's like this. I mean, her head's doing this. What are we doing? What are we doing here? Honey, we're going in this hotel. And she says intuitively, she says, this is a quote, okay? She says, I don't know what you got in your mind, but I am not getting out of this car. (laughs) Now, I would call that an uncooperative spirit. So I go around, and I go to open the door for her, and she's locked the door. Well, I got the key in my hand, okay? So I unlock the door. I open it. I literally pull her up. Now, here's the body language. Here she is walking up there. I mean, she's just telling me, no way this is going to be good for you, Lehman. And so she starts going up the main door, and I said, no, honey, this way. And she seemed a little surprised. Well, I was already in that room that afternoon. And in that room, I put three mysteries. She loves to read mysteries. In fact, she reads the same mysteries over and over again because she can't remember how they end. (laughs) And I had a little shoebox card for in a single rose with some baby breath. Gentlemen, if you're ever going to give your wife a rose, make sure there's baby breath. I'm just telling you, they like it. So we went up there and... uh, I pulled back the sheets on a king-size bed. I kissed her goodnight. I said, honey, I'll be back at 1.30 to take you to late breakfast. And I went home. I'm just here to tell you, that's how you make love to your wife. Yeah. (laughs) Preach it, brother. Preach it. I want to go there tonight. Find me a Motel 6, anything. I'll go there. Yeah. But, you know... I know my wife. She's the kind of person that likes her downtime. Our routine to this day, 
after we have dinner and we do whatever, we, we tend to watch Jeopardy together and some other things. But then she likes to go migrate into her little firstborn world. And she's got her little uh, tablet and she watches these crazy things. And she loves these shoot 'em up things. They drive me nuts. I watch Andy and Mayberry. I watch Hogan's Heroes. I mean, I watch Bambi Goes to Hawaii or whatever. I mean, I'm like G-rated, and she loves shoot 'em up mysteries and all that kind of stuff. Very different people. Very different people. But God has called us to become one. And so my job is to get behind her eyes and see how she sees life. Her job is to get behind mine. That woman has surprised me so many times. Now, again, the woman grew up in the first Baptist church in Tucson, Arizona. Let me just say one thing about you Baptists. you got a lot of rules. <laughs> rules without relationship. Listen to this sentence. It's almost profound. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. You can't run a school on just rules. And by the way, I have six, eight schools now, six in Arizona, two in Colorado, Lehman Academy of Excellence. You know, the funny part about that is I graduated fourth in my class in high school from the bottom. Maybe I'll tell you that story tomorrow at church service, how I became a Christian. Because at age 21, my life did a 180. And God gave me motivation, and I never looked back. But I brought this little book along. It's called Planet Middle School. I was sharing with Pastor Al earlier. I found my freshman year report card where I flunked everything. Final exam, algebra, 22. Flunked everything. Couldn't get in college. Got thrown out of college. Got thrown out of fourth grade. Got thrown out of Cub Scouts. Got thrown out of a lot of things. But it's interesting because... I look back at those at my life, and I go, you know, all those things served a purpose in my life. The dean of students threw me out of school in Chicago. The miracle was 10 years later, I was a dean of students at the University of Arizona. There's a story there, believe me. But that's what, that's what God's power does in your life. He's able to take your marriage, wherever it is right now. I can tell you, you need God in your life. If God's a part of that union, you can make it. You say, yeah, but he's this, and yeah, she's that. I understand that. But God gives us newness in everything he touches. But it means we have to do that submit thing. Remember I told you about the 12,000 ladies in Vegas? They don't, they don't quiet down. They're still talking when I'm up there. And what I've learned to do as a public speaker is you just stand there. You feel like a fool. I don't say one word until they're absolutely quiet. I teach, teach our teachers that in the classroom. Never open your mouth until the class is absolutely quiet. So now it's absolutely quiet. What do I say to 12,000 women? I've chosen tonight as a topic how to be a submissive woman. You don't think that gets some stares and some looks and some, I mean, they hate you immediately. I loved it. But at the end of it, they also gave me a standing ovation. But I've learned how to get their attention. And lots of times in marriage, We've just gone our separate ways so darn long. It's just, it gets tough. We just, well, I, I have a book, uh, a chapter in one of my books called Dump Truck, Dump Truck, Who's Got the Dump Truck? In a little book called Sex Begins in the Kitchen because there's company in the living room. 
And I, I draw the picture that what we do to each other lots of times in marriage is we get a bunch of manure, we put it in that dump truck, and then we find our mate, we push that little button, and all of a sudden we dump all that stuff on our mate. It's like we vomit on them almost, emotional vomit. Well, they come in for counseling. They want to fix their marriage, and they say, I don't feel anything. No wonder you don't feel anything. You've covered your relationship with yards, cubic yards of what? Of manure, of garbage. So you need something. So for those of you who are in, in trouble in your marriage, you know who you are. Find some help. Read some books. I've got some pretty good books on marriage. They, they, we don't pull any punches in a Lehman book. I tell you what it's like. So, and by the way, everybody doesn't like you. I've learned that as an author. Everybody loves my wife. I give you zip codes of people who don't like me. All right, Pastor L, we're at 7.30 almost, so we're a little over. Why don't you come up and do your thing, and then when I, we come back, uh, I do have some books out there. Let me tell you quick before I forget. What do I do with those babies somewhere? Oh, here they are. For those of you who are leaders or want to be leaders, this book has been in hardback since 2004. In the book industry, a book is in hardback for a year, and then you put it in paperback. It's called The Way of the Shepherd. Great little book on leadership. Making Children Mine Without Losing Yours. Great, especially if you have young children. Sold over a million copies for a reason. Have a New Kid by Friday. Good for the little ones, but good for the older ones who have a mouth going as well. New York Times bestseller. Tough to do. Sheet Music. This is the book about marriage and sex in particular. It's a wonderful book. It's, if, if, pick up your phone and read the reviews on it. You'll see why it's a great book. Everybody says it is. Uh, the Intimate Connection. Those of you who struggle with intimacy, here's the guide to try to get to where you are to where you want to go. And then finally, Why Your Kids Misbehave and what to do about it. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But you know what? In a nutshell, you guys teach your kids how to misbehave. You're the ones that make them powerful. And I'm going to talk about that as soon as we're done here with our little break. We'll take about a 10-minute break after Pastor L does his things. Thanks, Pastor, again for inviting me. So Dr. Lehman says, go ahead and let's get this show on the road. So I come up here, and then I don't know where he is. There he is. Here he comes. It's been really good, really good. To, like I said, we, we listened to Dr. Lehman, uh, you know, really early on in our, our Christian walk. And it was really nice to have kind of a practical, you know, down-to-earth, good counsel um, as a Christian. And... And I went to uh, school to be a counselor as well. So some of the some of the things that I would hear Dr. Uh, Lehman share with either Focus on the Family or some other programs, uh, it, it it didn't necessarily correlate with some of the things that I was being taught in school. But this was always top notch, top shelf. And so I could go back and to my professors and say, no, no, I didn't say anything. I just tried to get a good grade, but. So, Dr. Lehman, you're back. Thank you, Pastor Al. For those of you who don't know, he, he built this church from square one. It's not an easy thing to do. That tells you a little something about 
the salmon-like qualities that Pastor Al has in his being. Not easy to do. You know, there's very few scriptures that really specifically talk about marriage uh, and parenthood. I've heard a lot of pastors come up with a litany of, of uh, passages, but they don't really speak to what parenthood is really all about. Train up a child in the way he should go when he's old, he will not depart. Well, I got news for you. Most of us don't train up children. If anything, we train down children. Mom's going into the grocery store. She's got two kids with her. You want to hear the conversation? All right, listen up. No running around, no fooling around. Don't ask for anything because the answer is no. Your father's going to be home in a little while. I got to get dinner ready. You got that? Now, what have you just told the kids? What's your expectation? I made the statement earlier. We teach kids how to misbehave, okay? Here's the scripture you can hang your head on. It's Ephesians 6. It's this guy named Paul. I never caught his last name, but he's really a pretty good guy. He says, children, this is in a living Bible, children, obey your parents. This is the right thing to do because God has placed them in authority over you. Honor your father and mother. This is the first of God's Ten Commandments that ends with a promise. And this is the promise that if you honor your father and mother, yours will be a long life full of blessing. Now, I like this Living Bible translation because it uses the word authority. Now, here's the question of the evening. Is God an authoritarian? Is God an authoritarian? Now, here's the problem. Almost everybody in this room tonight grew up in an authoritarian home. My father, Irish Catholic, eighth grade education. He'd say things like this. Hey, eight o'clock. And he'd point. And that meant move. If you didn't move, he'd come back with, hey, you want to go to bed on your own power? Or you want to be ricocheted to bed? But the point is what? You're going to bed. Now, here's the problem. God, in all of his glory and majesty, does not grab you and I by the scruff of the neck. Okay? He doesn't rub our nose in it. In fact, he's more like the Fram oil filter man. You've got to be old to remember the Fram oil filter man, but he'd come out and say, look at this engine. I had to tear it down, cost a ton of money. You know, this guy, if he only would have used a Fram oil filter, he would have saved himself all this money. And the punchline on the commercial was this. Well, you can pay me now, in other words, buy the filter, or you pay me later. The reality is that's more what God's all about. He gives you and I full choice, free choice to do what we want to do. He doesn't make us do anything, but he does hold us accountable for what we do. And so our model, okay, is not one of authoritarianism. And it's just when you guys are under pressure, in fact, how many of you admit that you've told yourself at some time in parenthood journey, I will never say what my parents said to me. Not only do you say it, but you say it with the same tone and inflection. Don't point your eye out. Don't poke your eye out. Remember being told that? I remember being told that and thinking, well, why would I poke my eye out? It just doesn't make sense to me. Don't poke your eye out. We do stupid things like that. 
All right, all right, then there's no more candy for life. Do you understand me? No more candy for life. Now, you laugh, but you're the ones that say those stupid things. Do you see what I'm saying? And so the expectations that we have for kids, kids tend to live up to. And to be a good parent, you have to understand a couple things. We talked about marriage a minute ago, but I got news for you. When you guys fight as a couple, you have those little disagreements. I'm here to tell you that you're cooperating with one another. You know exactly what to do to escalate the battle. No, honey, you go ahead. No, you play golf. I'll just stay home here with your mother. That's what we call a spit in your soup. You, no, honey, you go ahead and play. You know, it's that little barb on the end of it. Well, you know, you always know what's best. Why am I getting feedback? What am I doing wrong? Something? Am I doing something wrong? Okay. Let me know. I'll do my best. Um, and so this thing, the paradigm of being a good parent means you're going to hold kids accountable. You're going to understand that fighting is an act of cooperation. Now, here's the quote of the night. We have seen the enemy... That's not Satan. We have seen the enemy, that would be your children, and they are unionized. They know exactly what to do. They are the enemy. They know how to play you like a violin. Oh, she hit me, she hurt me. How about the kids who slam the doors? What does a traditional parent say to a kid who slams the door in your house? And you're the traditional parent. Hey, don't you be slamming the house and the door in this house, young lady. I'll give you something to think about. Okay, that's a, that's a traditional parent, authoritarian parent. How about this one, when the door slams? Oh, honey, excuse me, I'm not sure what that slam door meant. Does that mean you're sick of living in this four-bedroom home with premium Wi-Fi? <laughs> Just checking. Or when the kid rolls her eyes, you know, don't you roll your eyes at me. Young no, how about this? Oh, honey, that was so good. Do that again, only do it in slow motion. That was so good. They're kids. They're going to do and say stupid things. Ladies, here's a question for you. And I got to go back to kids and husbands have a lot in common. Is it possible? Now, Chris, I want you to answer this question. Is it possible that your husband could say something that's absolutely just Dumb as a rock. Okay. I'm not even looking. All right. The next time your husband says something really stupid, really dumb, rather than ring him up and correct him, just simply look at your husband and go, wow. Wow. Fascinating. Do the same thing with kids. Lots of times kids, just to get our attention, you know, will throw something out there. My son's 15 years old. At dinner time one night, he yells out. He says, I'm going to get an earring. Well, you should have seen Mrs. Uppington. You would have thought the kid said, I love Satan. <laughs> and she looks at me. She looks at me like, do something. And, and every time Kevin turned away, she says, I mean, I, I could care less, to tell you the truth. But after three days of her badgering me, okay, I took things in my own hands. I went and got an earring. 
I showed up at the dinner table with an earring. I thought for sure my 15-year-old would about die when he saw it. He didn't even look my way. He's plowing through the food. You know how 15-year-olds eat like at a trough and a pig. And he didn't even notice it. So finally, I did one of these things where I reached this way and pointed that glitter toward him. And all of a sudden, he looked at me and his eyes narrowed. And he says, you look absolutely ridiculous. I said, really? I said, your mom likes it. <laughs> Never saw an earring in the kid. And I want to be clear. There's no big deal about the earring. I could care less about the earring. But lots of times as parents, we get hung up on these little things. You know, they want blue hair. I mean, I see adults walking around with blue hair, purple hair. I don't care what the color of hair is. Pay more attention to your kid's heart than you do the clothing he wears. Okay? But keep in mind that they're watching you. When a kid throws a temper tantrum at a mall in a store, do you have a mall in Corey? Is there a mall? Just a little mall? Just an itty-bitty little mall? Two stores next to each other? Anyway, never mind. Uh, a kid throws a temper tantrum on the floor, okay, because you won't buy him a treat or whatever. And I always tell parents, you step over the child. Realize there's a temptation to step on the child. I get that. I understand that. Kids can drive you to do funny things. Don't step on your kid. As you walk away, the kid's not going to stay there and continue to make a fool of himself in front of strangers. Now, let me give you a psychological word I want you to remember. That is purposive behavior. That behavior, the throwing the tantrum, throws a, serves a purpose in the kid's life. The purpose is he's saying, I am in authority over you. That scripture I just read clearly says that we as parents are in authority over our children. Now, there's still authoritarians around, okay? Authoritarians tend to act quick. You know, they tend to be the ones that demand perfection way, way, way too quickly. Well, that's one extreme. But on the other extreme today, we have so many parents that are just permissive. They're permissive, you know. And um, I, I talk to parents, oh, oh Dr. Lehman, um, Ralph and I feel very strongly about this. We believe every child should get a trophy. So we've enrolled Melissa in non-competitive soccer. I'm here to tell you, in life, kids need to learn to lose. Failure is important for kids to learn. There's not a better place for a kid to learn to fail than within a Christian home. And by the way, is there anybody that ever came to Jesus Christ out of victory? I don't think so. You come to Jesus out of failure, and you submit your life to him. I'll tell you my story tomorrow morning. It's sort of interesting, but because I didn't want to. This is the last thing I want to do is become a Christian, and I became one. So if you're a heathen out there, stay tuned tomorrow morning. You might enjoy this one. But, again, you have to understand you're an authority. The permissiveness, if you bring up your kid permissively today, he will rebel. She will rebel. If you bring up your kid in an authoritarian manner, they'll rebel. So there's only really one way to bring up a child, and that is to be an authority over your children. What does that mean? It means your yes is yes. Every kid needs vitamin E, which is encouragement. But every kid needs vitamin N, which is no. You're the parent. You're either the captain or the co-captain of a good ship family. There you are on the sea of life. 
My question is, do you have a port of call? Do you know where you're going? You're going to have mutiny on the good ship family. I'm here to tell you, there's going to be mutiny. There's going to be somebody overboard. You're going to have to send them a, a, a life ring. Having kids is not easy. Now, kids are dumb as mud. They're absolutely dumb as mud. How many have been to the ER? <laughs> I mean, kids, you know. And are boys and girls different? Hello? You ever watch little girls play? Little girls talk like this. We will do, we do this and we'll do this. We, we, we. Men don't talk in we's. Men talk in me. I, you know. Remember the old king of the hill or queen of the hill? That's what birth order is all about. Striving for superiority. When you're a kid on a sand pile, the object was to stay on top of the sand pile. Well, that's, what, that's why in families, we'll talk a little bit about birth order, the first two children in a family are night and day different. They've had to let you know a little secret. The title of the birth order book, which is sold in the millions, when it went to the publisher with cardboard and rubber bands, the working title was Abel Had It Coming. And the publisher said, you can't have a title like that. I said, why not? It's got a nice family flavor to it. Well, they said, well, you can't have it. Now, I'm the baby of the family, okay? Got sister who's perfect, brother who's near perfect, and then me. And so I said to him, in true baby of the family style, I said, fine, then you guys name it. And so they sat around their oak table, and they came up with a provocative title, The Birth Order Book. If that's not the boringest title for a book, I don't know what is. Now, it's sold in a million, so I can't bag it too bad, but really. Abel had it coming. I still like that title. <laughs> but see, your kids are different from each other. And here's what happens. There you are. You're watching uh, Friends reruns or Seinfeld reruns, depending upon what you think is funny. And all of a sudden... You hear screams from the nine-year-old and 11-year-old in the back room. And as only your wife can say, gentlemen, she says, Honey, John, would you do something? And so there you go, John. You go back there and you push open that door and say, All right, now I've had it. Who started it? And they point at each other. Okay? And you say things you would never say in front of Pastor Al. And you slam a door with, and that's final. And now your blood pressure is pumped up and your face is red and you sit down next to your wife and as only your wife can say, she says, honestly, John, I think you're entirely too rough with the boys. And then you get in her face and says, it seemed to me if you discipline around here, I would have to do that. Now, five minutes earlier, were you mad at each other? No. I reaffirm the fact, children are the enemy. In fact, they always say, don't try this at home. Try this at home. If you've got kids that are four, five, six years old, try this at home. Go to your kitchen and just start making out, to put it bluntly. And watch what happens. I don't know how the kids know that mom and dad are on the make, but they know it. And what do they do? They come out like little torpedoes, and they come right up between you. Why? Because children are the enemy. That's why. No, they do it because they want to be a part of that sandwich. I'm telling you, kids are very acutely aware of what goes on, the dynamics in your family. 
Firstborn children, reliable, conscientious list makers are the movers and shakers of life. I just did an interview with a guy in Jamestown yesterday. He interviewed me for an hour, and I brought my sister along to the interview, and he knew my sister on top of that. So I had to be sort of gentle about what I said about Sister Sally. But she never got a B in her life in anything. Straight-A student. She would iron the Davenport if you gave her an opportunity. Her kids were color-coordinated from birth, okay? And she marries a dentist, and his motto is find the hole, drill the hole, fill the hole. Very exciting man, by the way. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and then there, was, then there was my brother, Jack, who was John Jr. He's the firstborn son, even though he's in the middle position. But he was the quarterback in the football team, voted best-looking in his class, and all those stupid things we did years ago in, in high school yearbooks. And then there was me. Well, I'm a shrink. I, I figured myself out years ago. I graduated fourth in my class from the bottom, okay? Couldn't get in college, got thrown out of Cub Scouts, fourth grade. What else? Thrown out a lot of things. Sort of funny because the school that threw me out in college brought me back and gave me uh, an honorary uh, doctor of human letters degree. <laughs> it's funny how life works out, isn't it? But anyway, I digress. I'm sorry I could at that. But anyway, your middle children. How many of you are middle children? We got two middle children who are married. I don't want the white meat. No, I'll eat the turkey neck. No, no, honey, you have it. I'll eat the turkey neck. Middle children, God bless them, they're the peanut butter and jelly of the sandwich. Okay? They're good at rolling with the punches. They never had mom and dad themselves. They had somebody bigger than them, somebody a little older than them, depending upon the genders of the kids above them. And some middle children are firstborn children. If you're the, if you're the, second child and you're a daughter, but you've got an older brother, you could still be a firstborn child. So all these things, the kid that you identify with in that family is the kid that is most like you. And so the kid that you tend to butt heads with, and this gets sort of interesting, it's embarrassing almost, the kid that's most like you is the kid you don't get along with. It's the kid that's different from you where you probably have a little easier time together. That's why when two firstborns marry, that's interesting. How many of you are firstborns that are married together? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Your husband, I'm going to pick on you because you're close. All he does is hang a left-hand turn, okay? But you've got a better idea. Why are you turning here? All you got to do is go up here and go over there. Firstborns always know what's better. They're always shooting on each other. When I'm on TV, I have to be very careful when I use the word shooting, okay? But we should on kids. And when we should on kids, we're literally saying, you didn't measure up. You're not good enough. Aren't you glad you worship a God that loves you as you are? You know, we sing that song, I come. You know, just as I am, I come. You don't have to clean up. People always think, oh, no, you got to clean up to be a Christian. No, you just come. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. So again, I say, as you're rearing kids, pay attention to the heart of that child, okay? It's easy to find the flaw. 
And that's an interesting thing. When we pray, do you pray from the ideal self or the real self? Oh, Lord, make me this. Oh, Lord, make me that. That's the ideal. Or do you pray from the real? Lord, you know I have a problem with this. You know I have a problem with pride. I'm reminded that God hates pride. And by the way, if you're a heathen here, let me tell you something. God doesn't move toward you. You can write that down. He doesn't move toward you. He won't move an inch toward you. But if you move toward him, he'll take you as you are. It's sort of interesting because you think about our earth axis is what, 22 and a half degrees? I have a friend who's got a PhD in atmospheric physics. He said, Kevin, you know, if you took the earth's axis and you moved it just one degree, we'd fry. One degree the other way, we'd freeze to death. Is God who he said he is? Yeah, he is. So as we take on the awesome responsibility that God gives us of being a parent today, you're seeing all the stuff politically, and I'm not going to go political on you. I'm just telling you it's crazy. You look at the state of Virginia is a great example with school boards and, and the kind of stuff they're coming up with. And parents are rising up and saying, hey, wait a minute. These are our children. These aren't the school district's children. Okay? And again, I've got eight schools with my name on it, Lehman Academy of Excellence. Look it up. Go online and see what we do. But you know what we do in the classroom? I tell every teacher, we're not like other schools. We don't give you all the lip service and then throw you in there and say, oh, one more thing before the first day of school. Let me have your hands. And we tie their hands behind their back. We give them authority. And so I tell the teachers, you know, it's easy for you. We give you what I call the authority cookie. And when you've got a problem child in that classroom and you break off part of that a cookie and throw it away because guess what? You just sent them down to the principal's office. That's not the principal's job. That's your job. You're the, you're the teacher. When you get those two kids' faces and say, hey, what's going on here? I am unhappy what's going on here. Parents, get in your kid's face. I am very unhappy. Turn your back. Walk away. Run that by me again. You get in your kid's face. You say, Mom is very unhappy. Turn your back. Walk away. You're putting hot coals over your kids. I got news for you. They don't like it when Mom and Dad is unhappy. They actually want to please you. So I tell our teachers that same thing. I said, you're an authority. And I tell the parents at parent meetings the first time at school. I say, hey, listen. If uh, your kid's a disciplinary problem, we have teachers or professional, we'll deal with it. But let me tell you this, if your son or daughter is disruptive to the educational process of everybody, then expect a call from school. But here's the, here's the kicker. Guess who gets to call? The kid. He gets to call a parent at work. And you know what the message is? If you don't pick me up now, I'm suspended for a week. Do you think that works? It works beautifully. So we keep the tennis ball life where it belongs. So we live in, a, in an era where we let things slide. Nobody seems to be accountable for anything. Again, it's crazy what's happening in our country today. I mean, again, I don't get to do a lot. I live on the Arizona-Mexico border. Now, I'm not the brightest bulb in the tree. But I'm going to suggest to you that you cannot have a country unless you have a border. 
Borders are good. Some of you know horses well. Bridles are good. Boundaries are good. You don't have to put a bit in your child's mouth. You don't over control. But there's parameters. When our kids were growing up and they were going out for an evening, I'd always say, hey, remember you're a layman. And once at a seminar, I shared that with a lady when it came to Q&A time. She said, what does that mean, remember you're a layman? I said, well, tell you the truth, I'm not sure. (laughs) I think that means that there's a set of expectations that we have as parents that you're going to conduct yourself accordingly. I have to tell you the God's honest truth. The five kids, we never had a ripple. Not a ripple. And check this out. The Lehman kids never had a curfew. What? That sounds like permissiveness. No, it's not permissiveness. It's called being an authority. Hey, Dad, what time do you need to be home? Honey, be home at a reasonable hour. Dad, would you just tell me what time I need to be home? I said, I just did. Be home at a reasonable hour. Now you say, well, Lehman, if I said that to my kid, he'd be home at 3 o'clock in the morning. With my car that I own and I insure, that'd be the last time he'd have my car for a very long time. He would catch on to what I mean by be home at a reasonable hour. Now you can be prescriptive and dot the I's and cross the T's and tell them that these are the laws. Okay, the Pharisees had the laws. You can't have a relationship with God by following a set of rules. You have to have a relationship with the living God. And remember, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. His whole ministry was about relationships. I was sharing the pastor. I'm writing a book with my daughter, Chrissy, right now called Be a Great Teacher by Friday. And I start the book off with the three R's of teaching. But what are the three R's of teaching? Relationship, relationship, relationship. You ever flown on Southwest Airlines? Anybody? You'll have more fun on Southwest than any airline ever. You know why? Because Herb Kelleher, who I got to know very well, in fact, I interviewed him when I did the birth order book revision years ago, is the youngest of four children. And here's a quote from him. He said, you know what? We're in the service business at Southwest. It's incidental that we also fly airplanes. Isn't that interesting? So whatever you do in life, whether it's with your kids or marriage, it's all about those relationships. So again, with kids, I mean, they're kids. There's times you'd have to take the little buzzard by the beak. But today's parents just think that if you just praise children, everything's going to work out okay. Well, here's late-breaking news. Praise is destructive with children. I was Good Morning America's consulting psychologist, family psychologist, back when Charlie... Gibson and Joan Lunder were the host. And we did a piece once on praise, okay? And uh, the introduction to me was sort of interesting. I said, hey, stay with us. we got a psychologist coming on next who's going to tell us that praise is destructive with children. <laughs> stay with us. We'll have that nut back with us in just a minute. Okay, it wasn't quite that bad, but that was sort of the tenure of the thing. So I come on there, and I talk about how praise is destructive. You know who's worthy of praise? God. Your children are not worthy of praise. You want to encourage kids, not give them praise. Let's pick on the report card for a second. Report card comes home 
with five A's, your traditional mom. Five A's. Oh, I can't believe it. You're the best kid in the whole world. Oh, I can't wait till your father gets home. Oh, and I'm going to call that Aunt Martha and brag on you. And Grandma, oh, she's going to be so pleased. Oh, you are the best kid. Here's $20. Now, that's traditional parenthood with praise plus reward. And again, keep that's what we grew up with. Everybody in this room grew up with that. Let me show you how someone using a Lehman methodology would handle that same thing. Wow, five A's. Honey, it looks like all that hard work you put in really paid off. Congratulations, fist bump. That's got to feel great inside. And guess what, parent? You just saved yourself $20. (laughs) But do you see what I'm saying? The takeaway for the kid is somebody noticed the hard work that I did. So separating praise from um, encouragement, praise is focused on the actor. Encouragement is focused on the act, the kind act the kid did. That's what you want to do. And you can read about that in Making Children Mind or uh, Have a New Kid by Friday has some of that stuff. But you can change a kid's course of action quickly. I got to tell you the truth. The Have a New Kid by Friday book, I've said this on TV, it's a scam. It's a scam. You could have a new kid by Wednesday. You don't have to wait till Friday. You got to blindside those little suckers. How many of you have trouble getting kids out the door to school in the morning? Hands. Yeah. Let me give you something to do. When school goes back in session, first day, first day, don't wake them up. What do you mean, don't wake them up? I said, don't wake them up. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean, you let them sleep. You don't disturb them. They wake up naturally. What if they wake up at 10 o'clock? They're going to be very late for school. And they're also going to be very mad. Why are they going to be mad? Well, because I didn't wake them up. Well, lady, listen to me. Warnings are disrespectful acts. Let me repeat that. Warnings are disrespectful acts. John Thomas, if you don't hurry up, the bus is going to be here. You have nine minutes to be out there. And the kid grabs something to eat, doesn't have his coat on, goes out the front door. And how do you feel as a mom or a dad? If you've ragged on him for half an hour, do you feel good about yourself? You want to feel good about yourself? Let him sleep till 1030. And when he's angry and mad and he tells you he missed the geometry test or whatever, you're going to say, wow, yeah, that's going to be, yeah, somebody down there is not going to be happy. My mom, you're, 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 yeah, honey, I'm done waking you up. And I'm telling you parents right now, if you got a kid that you wake up in the morning and they wake up beautifully, there's not a problem. Am I telling you not to wake your kid up? No. I'm saying if there's a problem, stop being the alarm clock for that kid. Let him experience what being late is all about. But here's the fun part. While he's getting dressed, you call school. You talk to the assistant principal say, could you do me a favor? My son is going to be about an hour and a half, maybe two hours late today. His name is, would you mind calling him into the office and reminding him how important it is to be on time for school? So he's in his homeroom finally, or he's in his classroom, and his name comes over the speaker. Well, John Smith, please report to the office. No, I didn't know anything. Hey, Smith, get in here. What time are you here this morning? Um, 10.30, fine. What time does school start, young man? Hey, 8.30. What time are you going to be here tomorrow? 8.30, sir. It's much better come from that third person. 
you see how easy it is? It's called keeping the tennis ball alive on the right side of the court. So again, we teach kids to be non-responsible by snow plowing the roads of life for them, by making excuses for them. Excuses make the weak what? Weaker. And remember, fighting is an act of cooperation. With your husband, you know exactly what to say to escalate the battle. With your kids, trust me, they know every soft spot you have, and they'll work you. Those of you who have kids who are challenged, okay, they're 504s, they have numbers, they have special needs. Be careful. And this is a little touchy, but you got to understand this. Those kids with their, quote, disabilities, they'll use that disability like a club to beat you over the head with. So you're always better off expecting the best of that child and never making that excuse for a child because they have a challenge in this area or another. They didn't have enough numbers for me as a kid when I was in school, trust me. But you know what? It was a teacher who pulled me aside in April of my senior year of high school, and she said, I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, Kevin, has it ever occurred to you that you could use those skills you have for something positive in life? And I remember thinking, skills? I have skills? She said, I've seen you take over a classroom. The teachers talk about you in the teacher's lounge. I know your sister. I know your brother. I know your family. Do you think maybe you could use those skills you have for something good? And she was, a, she was a dear lady. I found out after the fact that she loved Jesus Christ. She was a Christian. And she tutored me from April to June, my senior year. I would never have graduated from high school. But see, somebody had to tell me the truth. Somebody had to psychologically disclose to me. See, in my mind, I couldn't compete with brother and sister who were near perfect. So I became the best at being the what? Worst. I was the class clown. I mean, I just did an interview yesterday. I told you, I, uh, he, he was saying, well, what kind of things did you do? I said, well, I remember crawling out of world history class on my hands and knees in Mr. Giffen's class. And I still, poor Mr. Giffen, he didn't know why everybody was, was, was laughing. He didn't even know I left the room. And we organized uh, alarm clock day. Back in those days, when I was growing up, you had an alarm clock. It dinged like a train coming to the station. And we, we all set our alarm clocks for 2 o'clock and put them in our locker. At 2 o'clock, I mean, it sounded like the fire hall. And then we had stuff the main corridor with newspapers. And, I mean, we, we did stuff that was fun, a little off-center, but we, we didn't hurt people. A little different than what happened. And by the way, when I was a kid... We brought our guns to school, believe it or not. We brought our guns to school. And I had a 410 shotgun. I'd bring it in. The ladies would, they knew me, and they'd put my name on it and put it in the corner. And after school, we'd all go pick up our guns and go pheasant hunting. Never would it ever enter any of our minds to shoot a classmate or shoot a teacher. Now, you take the long step back and see what's happening in our country. There's a perfect example of it. So it's tough. It's tough as a parent today. It's tough as a grandparent. And you grandparents, you have no idea the impact you have on your children and your grandchildren. When was the last time you wrote a note to your grandchild about life? I shared with my little grandson, Connor. I tell him everything I ever knew. Every little stupid thing I ever did, 
But I always tell him, he says, I know, Grandpa, always make a friend, always make a friend. You know, there's secrets to getting through life. And uh, I've done every TV show there ever was. I did Oprah Winfrey lots of times. I did The View a couple times. Those women, by the way. I'll use a psychological term. They're nuts. Okay? But I'm telling you, I've done every show there ever was. All the morning shows. I was part of ABC, but I did uh, Katie Couric and all of them, Brian Gumbel. And I, I told my grandson, I said, you know, Connor, it's all about relationships. I said, I'll give you a perfect example. There was a show over in California called Our Magazine. There was a guy named Gary Collins who was the host of the old Miss America contest. He was the host of the show. It's an easy show to do. It's sort of a variety show. It's an hour flight from where I live. And so I called my publicist. I have a lady who books me on those shows. And I told her I wanted to do the show. And I didn't hear anything. And I'm a busy guy, and it slipped my mind. And finally, I, I said, gee, I never heard about that show. So I called my publicist. And I said, hey, what happened to our magazine? And she said, well, they declined. I said, don't use big words with me. What did they say? And she said, well, they, they, they passed. They said no. And I said, say what? And so I did what you don't do in this business. The author doesn't call a TV show and say, I want to be on your show. That's, that is very bad. Very, very, very bad, bad, bad. Well, I called the show. It took a while to find out that studio number, but I got it. But I'll never forget the call because a woman answered the phone. She said, our magazine, my first words to that woman, listen to the words, could you help me? Now, she could say, no, I'm not going to help you. Drop dead, you creep. But you know what most people say, like 99.9% of people? They say, well, how can I help you? Well, I'd like to talk to Steve Clements. He was, a, he was the executive producer of the show. You know what's coming next? Well, who's calling? Uh, Mr. Nobody. She laughed. She said, excuse me? I said, Mr. Nobody, N-O-B-O-D-Y, nobody. She laughed again. I said, I have a name, but trust me, I'm a nobody. Now, that woman had complete power in her index finger. Back in those days, they had those push button, you know, five or six buttons on the bottom of a phone. She pushed the right button. I got to talk to Steve. It wasn't 120 seconds later I was booked on the show. I told Connor, could you help me? It's a wonderful door opener. You know, when Jesus knocks on your door, he doesn't huff and puff and say, I'm going to blow your door in. In fact, some of you remember the, the picture of Jesus knocking on the door, and it doesn't have a knob on the outside. It's got to be opened on the inside. And so for many of you as parents who tend to be authoritarian, you're like the big bad wolf. You're going to huff and puff and blow their door down. Well, good luck. It doesn't work that way. Your kid says something really off the wall stupid. How about this? Wow, you could be right. You've got to learn how to remove your sails from a child's wind. How many of you are baseball fans? Close play at second base. And nobody seems to be happy. The manager's screaming at the umpire. What's the good umpire do? He says, no, he missed the tag. He was safe. And then what does this umpire do? He's at second base. 
What does he do? Where does he walk to? Center field. He walks away from the play. That's what you have to do as a parent because these kids will try. They'll try to engage you in battle. And like fools, we fall for it like a chicken from a tall, like an egg from a tall chicken. We just take it hook, line, and sinker. So when they say something really stupid, and this goes for your husband, you can say, wow, you could be right. You're not saying it right. You're saying, wow, you could be right. Never thought of that. You ask your son, some kids, what color is the sky? You say, well, it's blue. Your kid says, no, it's aqua. There's kids who will fight about everything. And by the way, if you have one of those competitive marriages, you ever gone out with a couple for dinner, and they say, oh, we saw the best movie on Thursday night. And all of a sudden, there's a correction. No, it was Wednesday night. Who's winning your marriage? If somebody's winning your marriage, guess what? You both lose because marriage is not a competitive sport. Let me tell you bluntly, those of you who have kids, your kid wouldn't have underwear on right now unless you bought it. You have all the gold in your back pocket. I assume in Pennsylvania you can drive when you're, what, 16 or 15? I mean, you have more aces. I call it parental poker. If a kid's powerful and they're going to tell you who's the boss, hey, you know, just be gentle about it. Say, hon, listen, let's talk about this. I just, I want to be fair to you. I want to show you these cards I have. They're called aces, and there are four of them. Because the reality is you can't play that sport in school. You can't go on that field trip. You can't get a learner's permit. You can't get a driver's license. What are you going to do? I told you our kids didn't have, have uh, curfews, and I meant it. When the kids started to drive a car, guess who made the rules for driving the family car? They did. And they were much tougher than I would have ever been. Oh, Dad, I'll drive like there's a cop behind me at every turn. I'll never have more than one other kid in the car with me. I won't play the music that loud. But one of our kids violated that ticket thing. But, um, you know, they're all responsible kids. And when you give kids responsibility, they understand that to this day, when I'm making a left-hand turn, I think of my dear father who told me, Kevin, never, ever do you turn left unless you can see the entire lane. Look at me, I'm near death. Every left-hand turn, I wait till I see that clear lane. You ever see anybody get it when they thought there wasn't a car coming and they get it? You know why? That's great advice. So to be teachable, you have to be a good listener. Most of us as parents are not good listeners. And those of you who have the hormone group, man, those guys are weird. But when they want to talk, they're going to talk. They come in your, in your bedroom at 11 o'clock at night. You're groggy. You're almost in sleepy land. And all of a sudden your daughter or son wants to talk. You better listen. Because if you don't, they're not going to talk to you. They'll be talking to somebody else. So the expectations you have for your kids, they ought to be positive ones. They're tough ones. At our schools, we, we tell the teachers we have high expectations for you. We have high expectations for our, our, our students. The first graders in, our, in our, our kindergartners take Spanish. Our third graders take Latin. Our sixth graders take logic. And we are so far above other schools by standard scores. 
And on top of that, we can educate kids cheaper than the state can. So they love us. But, but what we do, what's different from us, is we put authority in that classroom teacher's hand. All I'm asking you to do is put authority, not authoritarianism, not your strong, you know, you're going to do it my way. But put the things into play where you begin to hold those kids accountable for the things they say and do in life. You don't always have to get back at them. It doesn't always have to be a teachable moment. It can wait. I was a baseball player. I, mean, I was a pretty good baseball. I was an all-star. And when I was eligible, which was the first six weeks of every season, I was pretty good. I love to share with people the New York Yankee organization offered me a contract out of high school for $45,000. But I couldn't get that much money together, so I never got that contract. <laughs> but... Um, Today, we have not only praise, which I've already talked about, but we have something called false praise. And I was having coffee in a restaurant one morning, having a cup of coffee. And USA Today, have you ever saw it? It's, it's a lousy publication. It's about as left as you can get. And I'm sort of a righty and not a lefty. But nevertheless, I came to the life section. They had a full section on false praise. Well, I've been writing about false praise for probably 30 years, 40 years. So I'll tell you how vain I am. I thought for sure that article was about me. <laughs> so I skimmed the article. This is so humbling. I skimmed the article looking for my name. It's not in there. It's happened a few times to me in life. But the guy had obviously read my stuff. I talked about false praise. And they used baseball as an example, and I was a baseball player. They talked about Little League. And this Little League pitcher threw three straight pitches over the plate, which is a minor miracle. And the kid never lifted his bat off his shoulder. He strikes out. He strikes out, and the young parents are screaming, Great at bat, Matthew! Great at bat! I got news for you, Matthew, you little loser. It was a lousy at bat. You didn't even swing. Now, don't send me a nasty email about calling a kid a, a loser. That was just for your entertainment. But you, but you know what would have been helpful? If maybe Dad would have said after the game, hey, Matt, rough, rough day at the plate tonight. Listen, I'm going to be home Wednesday and Thursday night early. If you want me to take you down to the park and, and throw BP batting practice, see, I'd be glad to. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not the end of the world the kid's struck out. The end of the world is you're, you're giving him the false juice about how wonderful he is. And that's what we do to kids today. You talk to any employer, and some of you are employers. You employ people. You tell me how hard it is to get people to work. You tell me how hard it is for people to show up, to make a commitment, to work hard. It seems to be a value that's gone. Well, you, I, again, not to get too far out there politically, but you can't just give trillions of dollars away to people and expect them to, to want to work. It's sort of like when the car business always came up with these, these what they call them, bonuses or something. The public's not stupid. They're not going to buy the car until the special bonus comes out where they save $1,750 or $3,000. But we've trained, we've literally trained our country to be soft. And that's something that I, I pray for, that Lord give us strength to, rise, to raise up leaders 
We only, we're not going to raise up leaders if we don't hold kids accountable in the home because that is the training ground. So listen, our time is short or out of time. I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going to gather. By the way, this church is sort of cool. I did a little research on them. These guys serve breakfast. Now, it said full breakfast. If I walk in here tomorrow and it's just a muffin, you're going to hear from me. <laughs> but, man, we've got some smart people in this church. Breakfast? I mean, if you're a heathen, I'm coming to church tomorrow. I'm going to have breakfast, and then I'm going to tolerate who's ever speaking, and I'm the guy that's speaking. So if you tolerated me tonight, you tolerate me tomorrow. How much time I got tomorrow? About 40 minutes? Okay, I'm going to give you a talk called The Way of the Wise. It's based on good old King Solomon. There's a book out there on the book table called The Way of the Wise, which the tomorrow's sermon is based on. But anyway, I appreciate uh, Pastor Al and Chris and the team inviting me here. I get a chance to speak in all kinds of churches. I mean, all kinds of churches. My preference, I ain't lying, is the small churches where I can look at people's faces and connect with them in some way. I've met some old friends here tonight. I've enjoyed being with you. And uh, again, church starts at 10.30, breakfast at 9 o'clock is what it says. Is that true? Don't lie. You're the pastor. Full breakfast. I like my bacon sort of easy, not too crisp. Okay. So let me close this in prayer. Father God, thank you. Thank you for being the God that you are. Lord, uh, I pray that uh, in the midst of changing times and so many various opinions about how life could be, that we will uh, turn to you for wisdom, for strength. It's tough being a parent today. It's tough being a married person. There seems to be so many distractions to pull us away from you, Lord. I just pray that every person here will consider where they are with you tonight and their relationship with you. Are you a God that they just pull out on occasion? Are you a God that guides every step of their life. I pray for these people. I pray for the congregation. I pray that you will bless them, that you will pour out your bounty upon them, that they will increase their influence on the people of Western Pennsylvania. Lord, thank you for loving us as you do. Take us to our home safely and bring us back tomorrow refreshed and ready to hear how practical your word is. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Good night. I'll see some of you at the back of the book table. Thanks again for joining us on this week's episode of the Salt Church Podcast. We're grateful you spent this time with us, and we hope the message today has moved you. Please be sure to join us again next week for another episode of the Salt Church Podcast. God bless, and we'll see you next time.